invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Peter, again, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Toward the back of your Bible, it's page 1016 in these Bibles in the pews. Before I read that, though, I think it's important to uh, remember that today is Pearl Harbor Day. You may not realize that of the 16 million vets from World War II, barely one million are still living, and they are dying off at the rate of 555 a day. Um, But of course, it was December 7th, 1941, at 7.48 in the morning that 2,403 Americans were killed in the the raid of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. 1,178 were wounded, and uh, four days later, the U.S. entered World War II. But uh, landmarks like that are very, very important to remember, uh, even even in a worship service. Let's uh, turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 5, though I'll focus on 1 through 4. Hear God's word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, see visually your appointment of elders in your church in just a few moments, we pray you'd give us greater understanding for the sentinels that you've put in our lives as caretakers of our precious souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Although it's not popular to mention him in sermons, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was one of England's most noted preachers in the 1800s. I mention him. uh, Some people say it's dated. He lived in the 1800s. Why I mention him? I would not be here today were it not for some of his sermons that were written. And as a high school senior, I was given a book I barely listened to sermons in those days. I had never read a sermon, and suddenly I found myself every day going back to that book and reading sermons that he had preached in the 1800s. So he keenly affected me with his writings. But if you don't know who he was, uh, he, he was born in the, uh, the early 1800s in, in England, and at the age of 20, he was called to be a pastor of what was called the New Park Street Chapel in London. And crowds began to come to hear this, what they called the boy preacher. And that necessitated that small church that had now grown so much, it necessitated constructing a huge uh, church building that was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle five years after he arrived. That was 1859. This building was built in 1858. One year later, the Metropolitan Tabernacle opened in London. And it was there that for 30-plus years, Spurgeon preached, pastored, wrote, trained pastors, uh, oversaw an orphanage with hundreds of children until his health forced him to retire in 1891, and the following January, he, he died. 
Uh, He died at the age of 58. And so during his 38 years as a pastor, the congregation numbered about 6,000 people in a day and age when getting to a church building would have been much more difficult than it is in our own day. Uh, Spurgeon was a Baptist, but he was very Reformed and Calvinistic in his theology. And because he preached that the Bible he believed was true, he was mercilessly attacked uh, by those in the church, by those out of the church, newspapers, magazines caricatured him on a regular basis. Uh, He was uh, scoffed at because he believed the Bible was true and he preached that. Uh, He had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, It's a hilarious sense of humor with things that he would say. And uh, he likes cigars, okay? He liked to smoke cigars, and one person approached him and said, don't you think that is uh, wrong to be smoking cigars? He said, well, I do it in moderation. And the person said, well, what would it be not to be in moderation? What would it mean to smoke in excess? And he said, well, when I smoke two at once. One biographer described him saying preeminently he was a preacher, his clear voice, his mastery of Anglo-Saxon, his keen sense of humor, matched with a sure grasp of Scripture and a deep love for Christ, produced some of the noblest preaching of any age. His sermons were printed and distributed all over the world. I understand that uh, in the English language, more is in print that was authored by Charles Spurgeon than by any other author. Uh, He preached a series of lectures at his pastor's college that were put in a book called Lectures to My Students. And I've said everything I said to lead to this quotation before we look at the passage. Here is one of the things he wrote in that book or he spoke that were put in the book. Every workman knows the necessity of keeping his tools in a good state of repair. If the workman loses the edge of his instruments, he knows that there will be a greater drain upon his energies or his work will be badly done. It will be in vain for me to stock my library or organize ministries or work on plans if I neglect the cultivation of myself. For books and agencies and systems are only remotely the instruments of my holy calling. My spirit, soul, and body are my nearest machinery for sacred service. My spiritual faculties and my inner life are my battle axe and my weapons of war. It's the inner life that matters to the believer. It's the inner life that matters to the shepherd in God's church. If you've been here for the past couple of months as we've looked at 1 Peter, I've just leapfrogged over a paragraph because this passage speaks to elders and shepherds in the church, of which we are ordaining and installing in just a few moments. I plan after Christmas to come back and pick up where I left off at the end of chapter 4. But he's writing to believers who were in a hostile culture, and it was growing more hostile by the week. It would become outright persecution from the government in a short time, and Peter himself would be executed. So he is writing as to how do you live? How do you live as a Christ follower in a hostile culture while you are suffering? And now he's going to direct a few words to shepherds, elders in the church. Now, three brief observations. One is, churches had elders. It's not a point of discussion today if you were to plant a church. We were at a large, megatype situation some time ago. My wife and I were, and 
And I found out later they only have a board. There are no elders. There's the pastor and like a board that oversees everything. And uh, biblically, I don't think you can have a church without elders or to, to come up with a system that excludes elders. So churches had elders. We know that this letter begins by Peter saying he's writing it to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I don't know if those names mean anything to you. They meant almost nothing to me, so I pulled out a map of uh, New Testament times, and I looked up where those regions were. They weren't cities. They were, they were provinces all around to the north and to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. And I, in my mind, thinking like a southerner, I said, well, that could be like Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee. And so it's a broad area. Some estimate there may have been hundreds of local churches within that region. So Peter, unlike Romans that was written to the church at Rome, or Philippians that was written to the church in the city of Philippi, Peter's writing to churches in a, a whole bunch of churches in a large area. That's what this letter is for. So he assumes that in all of those churches, they had elders. Secondly, the elders were shepherd pastors. Verse 2 says, shepherd the flock of God. Elders were the shepherds of the flock. Shepherds and pastors essentially and and elder means the same thing. My third observation is their primary charge was oversight of the flock. In verse 2 he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. It's a simple concept. If there was a shepherd with a flock, uh, he would put himself on a higher elevation so he could look out and see. Any approaching danger, anyone wandering off, he's to see over the flock. He is to care for the flock. So in that sense, the shepherds are overseers of God's flock. Now, if anyone was qualified to write about this, it was Peter. He was uniquely qualified. And that's just not my opinion. It's because when you think back what happened at the arrest and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, if you remember, Peter was the one who, uh, the night of Jesus' arrest, had told him, everybody else may deny you, but I won't. And then you know what happened in the early morning hours that Peter cowered before a servant girl at a fire when she said, you're, you're one of his followers, you were with the Galilean. And he, he denied it three times, and then he wept bitterly. After the resurrection, we have a, a very detailed account in the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Peter, like the other disciples, after the crucifixion uh, of Christ and then the resurrection, they went back to their businesses. Peter had gone back to his fishing business. So he and some others have spent the entire night fishing and not been able to catch anything. A man comes onto the shore and tells him, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And they did so, and they had this gigantic catch of fish. And Peter recognizes it's, it's the Lord, it's Christ. So he, he jumps into the water, he swims to the beach, and Christ has prepared some food for them to eat. And then they have this conversation. Uh, In John chapter 21, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter had a very unique call to be a shepherd to God's flock. 
going right back there before Christ ascended into heaven. Okay, just a few quick lessons from the passage itself. I won't reread it, but first of all, we see that shepherds, elders, are to shepherd in God's flock for the right reason. It says they are not to do this out of compulsion. Verse 2, what does that mean? It means that the person's heart is in it. Does this man exercise oversight of God's flock because he's inwardly motivated? Why would Peter mention this? Well, because it's a suffering church, and you better know what this is about. Hostile times call for committed leaders. You're like me. You read, I assume you read, articles and um, things on the Internet, and I keep up with Voice of the Martyrs and, and reports about the persecuted church in the various parts of the world. Who is it that, that is at the forefront of that, typically, when persecution comes? It's the leaders. It's the leaders. It's the, it's the teachers. It's the pastors. It's the elders. It's typically not just the, the person in the pew, so to speak. It's the leader. Those are the ones that are the lightning rods. And he begins by saying, you've got to be about this for the right reason. Now, the other reason is God holds them to a higher standard, and we will give an account. Who wants that on their plate? And that can be demoralizing. Any of us who are called to serve in this capacity as shepherds in God's church, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said we would be pulled from two directions, two opposing directions. One, we're pulled by the discouragement when we look at our own example and we see our deficiencies to be able to do this. Who am I to nurture other people in the Lord and oversee other people when, I'm, when I've got so much sin and inconsistency in my own life? But the other pull is who can walk away from this task? It's too notable a calling. It's too great a need. And so a person called to this this, uh, this vocation, so to speak, this calling, is pulled from both directions. There's a steady tension. There's a grind in that area. And so he says it must have the right, um, right reason. R.C. Sproul, speaking more of ministers, pastors, in his book on 1 Peter, said, In churches today, particularly in America, enormous expectations are imposed upon the office of minister. Because of that, 16,000 pastors leave the ministry every year. You know that? 16,000 in America. Today, a pastor is expected to be a psychologist, theologian, biblical scholar, administrator, preacher, teacher, and community leader. The minister spends so much time on secondary matters, he has little time to do his principal work, which is to feed the sheep through preaching and teaching. The greatest service your minister can do for you is to feed you, not with his opinion, but with the Word of God. Speaking of opinions, I want to give you one right now. It's really not an opinion. It's, uh, it's an affirmation. I, I want to say something only I could say, and I want to say it as a compliment to the elders in this church and the deacons and you as a congregation. But uh, for the 20 years I've been a pastor and for several years I was on the staff before that, the session here, without wavering, has always maintained that my primary role is to preach the Word. And whatever resources I have needed, books to purchase, conferences to attend, time to be away from the office in order to focus, without hesitation, they have always, as a body, said yes. So if you come to this church and you say, that guy's not really 
he's winging it. He's not really prepared or whatever. He must have stayed up watching football last night and didn't spend any time on the sermon. I did, but I did the other two. So. Uh, I was pulling for Georgia Tech. But uh, anyway, if, if that's the case, it is not the fault of the church leadership. I have friends that are pastors in churches, and they are expected to be at every committee meeting, uh, every function that the church basically has going on, there to be the primary caregiver of, of a couple of hundred people and, and, so, and teach, at, at, and they don't have time. They don't have time to prepare. I just, that's a side note, but I want you to know that. And, I, and I, those of you that are elders, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. So Peter writes that these men should shepherd for the right reason. Quickly, they should also shepherd for the right motive, not for shameful gain. In other words, not for what they can get out of it monetarily. Some of this is cultural because they, they paid men that became elders that were giving so much time that they needed time away from their work. We don't live in a culture like that that does that. Only vocational pastors are paid now. We don't pay elders. But there should be no greed in ministry. He warns about that. Third warning. They should do it with the right manner, not lording it over others. There should be no love of power. There should not be an ego that's flaunted. Or this person should not crave the praise and dependence of people. Um, to lead in the right way means that he sees the flock as entrusted to him. They belong to God. The church belongs to God. Uh, they are not his flock, but God's flock. The shepherd is tending the Lord's sheep. Uh, and so he leads by example. Our lives should be our, our sermons, in a sense. Uh, I'm not trying to overstate the importance of church elders. What I mean by this, never use the lack of spiritual leadership in a local church to justify your own laziness with spiritual disciplines. If you comfort yourself by saying, if it wasn't for that preacher or for those leaders or that teacher, I'd be a whole lot more committed in my faith. No. People, I really believe, are about as spiritually committed as they choose to be. Period. And I can't blame whoever... I'm sitting under, so to speak, for my condition. On the other hand, on the other hand, now speak to those of us that are shepherds. If we are not men of prayer and the word and compassion and outreach and so forth, then most of the flock probably will not be either. If my example is one of apathy and complacency and sarcasm, um, that will show up in the flock. It, leadership works. It always works. It works for good or it works for bad, but it always works. And so that is why the, the list of qualifications for elder and deacon are character-based. They don't focus on skill. They focus on character because that will replicate itself by example. Last of all, and I'm out of time, to, let, to this is added a promise, and that's in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd, that is Christ, when he appears, when he returns again, there will be a reward of an unfading crown of glory. I know a lot of shepherds in God's church after the many years I've, I've been a, a pastor. Uh, in many different places, elders, uh, teaching elders, ruling elders, 
in a variety of places, and none of them would say that this task is easy. They would all say it's difficult in the best of circumstances. Uh, it's very difficult if we're to be faithful. And I believe that what keeps them going uh, is knowing that when the chief shepherd comes, uh, he's going to call us to account. And he's going to say, did you feed my sheep? Did you watch over the souls entrusted you? Did you seek my lost sheep? Did you stand against the wolves of false teaching and immorality and protect my sheep? Did you love my sheep? And somewhere in the mix, there's going to be some kind of reward, an unfading crown. I don't know exactly what's being described there, except it must be great. <laughs> and it doesn't lack luster, and it doesn't lack appeal. And so last two thoughts, one to the flock and one to the shepherds. To the flock, realize that committed spiritual shepherds are a blessing from God. If you look in our bulletin, you're going to see several names. There are, and, and you may look at that and say, oh, look, there's six guys for session, there's eight for the diaconate. You realize there are churches in our denomination, in our denomination, that are having to revert back to what's called mission status, where they're not seen as local churches, but missions, because they don't have a single person qualified to serve in those areas. If, if God has provided us with qualified candidates, which he has, that is a blessing and should never be taken for granted. Spiritual, good spiritual leadership, godly spiritual leadership is a blessing from God. And you don't know how great it is until you try to go somewhere without it. And then, and then you see. My last word is for the shepherds. <clears throat> Keep a healthy balance. If you teach, be a good student. Read, listen, learn. Since you're called to lead, be a good follower. When you lead, put yourself in the follower's shoes. Although admonition may be necessary, always outweigh it with affirmation. And always remember, sheep must be led, not driven. Let's pray together. Um, Father, thank you that you have established your church and we in Christ are part of your flock and you care so much about us. You've appointed shepherds to look over our souls. We pray for your presence now and blessing in this part of the service with these men to be ordained and installed and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just following our book of church order, uh, I preached on officer qualifications back during the nomination process. So let me invite all the men uh, to be ordained or installed to come forward and to stand over here. Don't knock over the trumpet. me if you will. I'm going to ask them the questions from our book of church order. Not to be taken lightly. Uh, 
Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice, do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow, do you? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity, do you? Do you accept the office of ruling elder or deacon in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer, do you? Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord, do you? Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church, do you? Now, to the church members, if you're a member of First Presbyterian, this question is for you. Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as ruling elders or deacons, and do you promise to yield them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of the church, entitles him? Do you? Now, men that are to be ordained, if you would kneel, if you would come forward, those that are to be ordained. Come down on the floor, if you will, and face the congregation. And all the elders, uh, active and inactive, if you'd come forward for the prayer of ordination to lay hands on them. Let me ask all elders to come forward. And as they come, if you'll kneel down where you are. Go ahead and kneel. Yeah, you need to. And Mike Phillips is going to lead us in a prayer of installation and ordination. pray. Um, our Father, we pray for your servants today. We pray that they would be diligent in their duties overseeing your flock. We pray that you would give them wisdom in the many decisions that they face as officers. We pray that you would protect them from the attacks from the evil one. We pray that you would guard and protect their families. We pray that you would fill them with abundant peace and joy in their role as officers. We make all these requests in your name. Amen. You're standing at the elders to give you the right hand of fellowship. Each of you men. Then elders, elders can be seated after that.
Let me ask all who are uh, ordained PC, elders and deacons in the PCA to come and extend to them the right hand of fellowship too, if you would come and do so at this time. might want to step back over on the platform and hear this pronouncement from our book of church order. Uh, I now pronounce and declare that these men have been regularly elected, ordained, and installed as ruling elders or deacons in this church, agreeable to the word of God and according to the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such they are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Y'all might be seated. I invite you, if you will, now to uh, stand and receive God's blessing, the benediction. Then we will sing the doxology to the tune of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.